Hello, welcome to the hot seat. I'm Martin Rogers. I'm here with Maya Rasmussen from the LSE to talk about the EU and British attitudes towards it. Maya, welcome. Thank you. What is it that the British don't like about the EU and how does this fit into the context of the other countries within the EU? Well, generally, you can distinguish between um, hard Euroscepticism and soft Euroscepticism in the UK. Uh, so we saw last week that YouGov, they did an opinion poll where they asked people about whether they wanted to withdraw from the EU or not, and 49 of the people they asked said that they would like the UK to withdraw. So that's obviously a very hard Euroscepticism that they um, would like to leave the EU. And you saw it in the Tory party last year, where 81 M Tory MPs voted to have a referendum on British membership with the EU. Mm. So that's one element, but there's also another element. Um, generally, when you talk about your scepticism, researchers such as Katerina Sørensen uh, distinguish between four types of your scepticism. So you could have uh, economic scepticism, where you do a cost benefits, like you hear in the media in the UK, uh, where you look at how much you pay into the budget and how much do you get back and where the UK is paying a lot into the budget, but they don't get so much back in terms of farm subsidies and, and subsidies for regional, from regional funds. Then you have sovereignty-based Euroscepticism, where you are for a single market, but you are against any uh, supranational elements of the EU. Then you have a democratic Euroscepticism, where you uh, think that the EU is not democratic enough and citizens, they feel that their voices are not heard. And lastly, you have a social Euroscepticism, where you feel that uh, the EU is not social enough, that it's more of a neoliberal trait undertaking, but it's not social enough. Um, and that is a Euroscepticism that you find in France. But what is interesting in the UK is that the UK or the British citizens have a very strong uh, sovereignty-based Euroscepticism, and they have um, a more uh, soft uh, economic Euroscepticism. So mainly what the British population is against, according to Eurobarometer surveys, is the supranational aspects of um, the EU membership and to some extent also the aspects that we pay more into the budget than we get back. But we don't have a social Euroscepticism and we only have very limited democratic Euroscepticism in the EU, or oh, sorry, in the UK. And how legitimate are those concerns? Do you think, do you think the, the British public are right to be wary of the economic and sovereignty-based arguments that people feel? Absolutely. I mean, all of these types of Euroscepticism are very legitimate. Um, what we sometimes tend to forget in this country is that the UK has a big influence in the EU. So we have 73 MEPs in the European Parliament, which is about 10% of all the seats in the European Parliament. Uh, the UK, together with Germany and Italy, got the highest voting shares in the Council, where you have uh, the national ministers being represented. So the UK is quite influential, both in tangible terms, in terms of um, the voting weights and the seats it holds, but also in the more intangible terms, in that uh, it has been quite successful in, for instance, influencing the way that utility uh, networks has been liberalised in the EU. So it has played a great role in, in, in paving the way for liberalisation um, of these utility markets. So the, the UK has been, so far, very, very influential. What would happen to the UK influence if the settlement was renegotiated and what are the press prospects for a renegotiation of any sort of settlement treaties with the EU as some of the, as you say, soft Eurosceptics are arguing for in this country, a renegotiation? 
Well, what is happening at the moment is that David Cameron um, has started this competence review where he had asked all the departments uh, of the government to do uh, somehow a cost-benefit or do a review of the EU membership in all of these different uh, policy areas uh, that, the EU sorry, that the UK participates in. Um, but what we tend to forget is that it's extremely difficult to get a treaty uh, deal in Brussels. I mean, we saw that with the constitutional treaty that got rejected in France and the Netherlands, and then subsequently you had the Lisbon Treaty. It was a very drawn-out um, process that took many, many years to get to an agreement on. Um, and in the EU, whenever you make treaty changes, you need unanimity among the EU's 27 member states. So it's increasingly by scientists or political scientists seen as a nuclear option in the sense that it's very difficult to make treaty changes and it would also be quite difficult for other member states to accept if the UK wanted to uh, repatriate some of um, the power it has relinquished to the EU. Is that likely to leave a in-out referendum as the only option? Is uh, If there is little prospect of a renegotiation, is it likely that we are going to end up in a wholly in or wholly out position and maybe that will be what goes to the referendum? There, you think it's unlikely that there would be a third option, a renegotiated settlement? Well, one could imagine that, uh, for instance, in Justice and Home Affairs, where the UK got what is called an opt-in, so it chooses on a case-by-case -case basis whether it wants to opt-in or opt-out on new Justice and Home Affairs measures. So it got this almost like an a la carte menu where the UK can choose the dishes that it likes to, uh, to consume. Um, and one could imagine in that area, for instance, that the UK could decide to opt out of more areas, but that would generally perhaps not be in the interest of the UK government. But it would be very difficult generally to renegotiate the terms of the UK membership because you would need unanimity among all 27 member states. So what... Um, has also been debated is what would be happen if the UK decided to leave the EU altogether. And, uh, and there we can look at um, the situation of, um, of Norway, Liechtenstein and Iceland, and we can look at the situation of Switzerland, because they have very particular relations with the EU as outside EU, sorry, as, as outside uh, members of the EU. So, um, so Norway, for instance, is not a member of the EU, but they're part of what is called uh, the European Economic Area. So they participate in the single market and they adopt all of the different directives and regulations that the EU decides on and adopts and they have to implement it. Um, but they're not part in deciding. So, so in a way, Norway is relegated to a little bit of a lobbyist where it's a decision shaper by trying to influence member states, but it's not a decision maker. And you could see uh, the situation of Norway, which might be a situation the UK could find itself in, uh, as being some sort of fax democracy, whereby Brussels faxes all the latest um, developments and all the latest agreed uh, measures to Norway, and then they would have to implement it, but they don't actually decide upon it. So that would be one option. Another option would be an option like Switzerland, where Switzerland got a free trade um, bilateral agreement with the EU, so it doesn't participate in everything concerning the single market, but it's more negotiated on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, and what is different from that option compared to Norway is that uh, in Norway, um, the country participates in all single market measures, and it also participates, uh, or sorry, it has to implement uh, social and employment policies. 
and Switzerland participate in much of the single market, but it doesn't participate or implement rules on social and employment affairs. And that could perhaps be of interest to the UK government, because the UK government has been quite critical towards uh, the social employment policies being uh, adopted in the EU, such as the Working Time Directive and uh, the Agency Worker uh, Directive. Does Norway seem to get a good deal out of it? Is that somewhere that the UK would be realistically aiming to, to emulate, do you think? Well, the UK would lose influence politically if it goes for either the option that Switzerland has or that Norway has. Because the UK is a very important uh, member state of the EU. It has a big um, voting weight in the council. It has many MEPs. It's quite influential. Uh, so it would no longer be able to influence EU decisions from the inside. And it would no longer necessarily be kept abreast on the latest developments in the EU. So it would somehow be relegated to a lobbyist and would have to, you know, whiz around in the corridors of the EU institutions to find out what is actually going, going on. So it would lose political influence while it would still have to implement all the product and process standards that the EU decides upon because the EU is, um, is a big trading partner of the UK. So approximately half of the UK's export goes to EU countries. And in order to continue doing that, they would need to comply with process and product standards of the EU. So in, in searching for greater sovereignty outside of the EU, it's quite possible that the UK, by leaving the EU, would in fact have less sovereignty than it does at the moment because it would not be able to influence those decisions so centrally. Yeah, it would definitely lose influence on laws that it would have to implement anyway, but would not have a vote upon. That's right. In that case, Maya Rasmussen, thank you very much. You're off the hot seat. Thank Bye. You.